Welcome to the Miami Valley Church Podcast. We're so excited that you are here with us. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you are going to hear today. We'd love to have you join us online Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at miamivalley.org. If you love the Miami Valley Church Podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now go, love the valley right where you are. Hey, good morning and welcome to Miami Valley Church. My name is Pastor Jed and if this is your first time joining us, I want to say welcome and thank you for allowing us into your home or wherever you're watching from today. We are excited to hear the word that God is going to share with us today as we continue in our summer series on the road again as Dr. Cox leads us through Psalm 133. for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. 
I'm so excited today to get into the teaching Psalm 133. We are in the next to last song of ascent as we continue our summer series on the road again. The title for today's teaching is Together at Last, Together Forever. If you know where those lyrics come from, the title of the song that those lyrics come from, you put that in the comment section below, Together at Last, Together Forever. And the first one to get it right, I'm going to send you a little gift this week. Don't get too excited. It's not going to be a super big gift, but I'm going to send you something. So if you just engage and put uh, the title of the song, and maybe you know a little more information, Together at Last, Together Forever. I'm going to ask you, as I recite Psalm 133, just to remain seated, but I want to ask you to do something different today. I want to ask you to grab your Bible. Maybe you have a hard copy, or maybe you just uh, want to do it on your device. Maybe you have a tablet. Maybe you have a phone. I want you to open up your Bible, and I want you to follow along while I recite Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a song of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell, yes, together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, even onto the edges of his robe. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon descending onto the mountains of Zion. From there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life everlasting. God, I ask that you would take these truths in your word and you would show us what it is we need to see and how it is that we need to behave. God, I pray that our heart rates would increase for your mission, that our, that our lives would be lived for your glory. Father, may we, your people, be faithful to do what you call us to do this day. May we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're following along in Psalm 133 and you heard me recite it, you're like, you got it wrong, Tim. And there's a really good chance that my recitation didn't agree with your words that were right there in front of you. And we're going to talk about that, especially in verse 1. But before we do that, I want you to know that this is the 14th of 15 songs of ascent. We've spent the last 13 weeks going through these songs of ascent as God's children are traveling the road to Jerusalem for the three great festivals, for, for Passover, for Pentecost, for Tabernacles, and they're going to worship. And many of them have traveled for days, uh, 60, 70, maybe up to 80 miles on foot, and they're ascending. And this is the next to the last song that they're going to sing. And I think they have to sing it because they need to be reminded what they're about ready to do. They're not going for vacation. They're not going for holiday. They're going to worship the Almighty God together with brothers and sisters from across the land. And so we get into this song. It's a song of ascent. Uh, have you ever traveled and got almost to your destination and everybody in the car or on the plane or however you're traveling was just on each other's last nerve? And you're just like, I don't want to to see you right now. I can't deal with you anymore. Or maybe you're getting ready to go to a family reunion or some other event. Maybe it's a company outing and you're like, oh, good grief, that person's going to be there and I do not want to have to deal with them. And what am I going to do? And you start playing that conversation in your head and just know there's going to be tension. 
Have you have you ever traveled to a place that's just occupied with lots of people? I need you to see these are pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, and they know what they're about ready to walk into. The city population of Jerusalem is, I don't know, going to quadruple. Maybe it's going to multiply by a factor of 10. There are going to be more people present, and it is just going to be so hard to even get around the city. And they know that they're going as followers of Jesus. And you know what else they know? People are going to be watching. And this psalm reminds them that the world is watching how the followers of Jesus behave when they say there are people who worship uh, the one true God. And so all these things are playing into effect as, as these pilgrims are ascending to Jerusalem. And this next to the last song, I think they sing it short, but I think they sing it and it just reminds them of what they're really going to be doing in the next few days. But it also says that it's a song of David. We know that David is the author of these lyrics. We don't know exactly the content or the or the background or the setting when he wrote these songs or this song, but, but I want to give you two things that might have been on his mind. I think one of the things that David might have been on David's mind is he's talking about God's people dwelling together. Yes, in unity. He's he's talking, he's thinking about that day when his coronation as king of Israel finally took place. He had been anointed as king. But there was somebody who already had that job. His name was Saul. And King Saul was going to pursue David for a whole decade. In the last eight years of that decade, there was this horrific civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It was ugly. It was brutal. And there was hatred involved. But all of a sudden, it comes time for David to be installed as king. And there's a coronation at the city of Hebron. And all of the people from all of the tribes come and they sing David's praises. And God himself speaks. And he says, you are now the shepherd of my people. You are their ruler. You are their leader. And all of the people rejoice and all of the people are together. It hasn't just been eight years of horrific civil war. It has been 400 years since the kingdom has really been united. We would say that it was a united kingdom under King Saul, but Saul uh, caused more division than almost anything else. But this is now finally, after 400 years of waiting, the kingdom is going to be united under the man after God's own heart and the nation rejoices. So I think that situation might have been on David's mind as he composed these lyrics. Fast forward about seven years from the time David is installed as king in Hebron. Now finally, Jerusalem, is under their control. David and his armies had, had defeated the Jebusites and taken control of Jerusalem. David had purchased the, the plot that was the threshing floor that was going to serve as a place for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the, ultimately the temple. And David had rediscovered the, the Ark of the Covenant that we saw last week, and he's now escorted it to Jerusalem. And the people just rejoice because the glory and the presence and the power of God shows up in such a powerful way that they can't even enter the tabernacle. And all of God's people are excited to be there in worship. And I think these two pictures are probably on David's mind as he composes the words of these song of this song. And so the song begins this way. Behold. Now some of you are looking at your English translations and you do not see that word in there. And you're right, it's not there. But in the original Hebrew, the word behold is there. And it's one of the great words of the Hebrew language. And I think as we look at the rest of this song, uh, verse one says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell, yes, together in unity. When we think about unity and we live in a world where Man, that's just so something that we long for. There seems to be so much uh, disharmony. There seems to be uh, unity is not anywhere on the picture when you think politically or you think even among churches very much that there's just not this unity. And this paints this incredible picture of God's people dwelling together in unity. You're like, yes, I want that. But before there can be unity, 
There has to be something else. And I think it's sad that this word in so many English translations, and I know we've got people watching from other countries where you're probably not using an English Bible. Maybe you're in Nicaragua or uh, Ecuador and you're, you're using a Spanish Bible. Or maybe you're in Germany and you're using a German Bible. So I can't speak to that. But I looked at almost 50 different English translations or paraphrase, and in 75% of them, this word doesn't show up. And I think we need to understand that before there can be unity, there has to be beholding. Beholding has to come before unity. And so when you see this word in the Hebrew language, it gets your attention. You're, you're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden, now all of a sudden the Bible's not boring and dull. You, you sit up and you take notice because this word behold means pause, stop, um, consider, uh, pay attention. Uh, even more strong. It means wake up. It's like putting an exclamation point at the start of a sentence. God wants to get our attention. He wants to take us and show us something that's deeper. He wants to drive us to a deeper level of commitment. He wants to drive us to a, a deeper understanding of who he is, what he's like, and how he expects us to behave. And so David just starts this word with behold. And it's the next to the last song for these pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. And I think They've been singing 13 songs already, and now the 14th one starts with behold, and their attention is captured one more time. And I think God wants us to behold. Friends, until we can behold, the the word is uh, hene, and, and, it, and it's just this fascinating word, pay attention, wake up. God's about ready to speak. All of God's word is God speaking, but God doesn't want us to miss any of it, but he really doesn't want us to miss this. So the songwriter says, behold, do I have your attention now? But every time this word appears, hene, behold, there is only one acceptable. There is only one anticipated response from somebody who is a follower of God Almighty. And it's a play on the word. And the, if behold is the thing that gets our attention, the only response is behold me. That doesn't make sense in the English language, does it? Uh, if God says, I want you to behold me and my vision and my mission, our only response is, okay, God, now you behold me. We, we see it in the life of David as he's a young shepherd boy and he goes down to the front lines taking some food to his brothers uh, as his dad commanded. And as he gets there, there's this giant named Goliath who for 40 days straight has just been defying the living God and the armies of the living God saying, who's going to fight against me? And David goes through this process and finally he just looks at the king and says, I'm your servant, send me. That's, that's behold me. Maybe even more powerfully, we see it. Specifically, we see the word in Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah has this vision of God seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and angels are just shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah all of a sudden says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And an angel goes to the altar of God and takes some tongs and gets a coal and comes over and touches Isaiah's lips and, and he's cleansed and he's forgiven for his sin. And then God speaks and God says, um, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter six literally is, behold me, God. It's not what your English translation says if you've looked it up and are reading it. The English translation says, here am I, send me. But it's this response, behold me. God, look at me. And when God says, behold, here's my vision and here's my mission for how I want my people to live, the only acceptable response is within humility and all gratitude to say, okay, God, look at my life and see if I'm living that way. And if I'm not, forgive me, and I will commit to sacrificial obedience to live the way you want me to live. You want to know why there's no unity. 
You want to know why there's no uh, sense of togetherness in, in, the, in the lives of God's people and in our country when it comes to this political season. It's because uh, we've stopped beholding. We've stopped paying attention to what God wants because when it comes to this concept of, of unity, look at what God's word says. It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is. Yes, we want that. It's it's good. That word also means in Hebrew it also means beautiful. It's good because we can we can see it with our eyes. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's good. It's pleasant. It, it, that word means sweet to the taste. Uh, we can if we just get a taste of what what life's supposed to be like. It's good. It's pleasant. It's it's desirable. It's 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 necessary, but it's also <laughs> difficult. How good and pleasant. How how beautiful and how sweet it is when. Mm, there's the factor that we don't like. It doesn't come automatically. It takes effort. And the effort that it takes is there are some people who are simply saying, I will behold God and his vision and his mission, and I will ask God to behold me. And if I'm not the re- if I'm the reason that there's no unity, God forgive me and God use me. How good and how pleasant it is when God's people, the literal translation, some of your translations say brothers, but I don't believe it's just supposed to be males only. I think it's brothers and sisters. I think it's talking about God's people. I think it's talking about God's family. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people dwell. And then I include the word yes right there. Your English translation doesn't have that word either, but in the Hebrew language, there's a word that's inserted after dwell and unity. And, and it's, it's the word yes. It's, it's the way in Hebrew that you're going to put an exclamation at the end of a statement or at the end of a thought or at the end of a sentence. And so I need you to see this, that David is doing everything within his power to intensify, to elevate our heart rates, to let us see this is what God expects and this is what God wants. And so there's an exclamation point at the beginning. There's an exclamation point at the end. There's just this sense of when we hear this, we stand up, we shout, we raise our hand and say, Behold me, God. Count me in. I want to be part of that solution. But the picture is that we dwell. It's not some of your translations say live, but it's more than just live. It's to sit down together, to converse together, to share a meal together, that that it's together. Together we do this and we do it in unity. I want you to think about unity for just a minute. Our our unity is all messed up because our unity is based on on, on our desires, on our plans, on our on our beliefs. And if people have the same beliefs as I do, if people behave the same way that I do, if people follow the same doctrine that I do, um, that's what we think is the basis of our unity. But I need you to see, my brothers and sisters, that this isn't about our unity. This is about the unity of God. This is God's unity that's at stake. This is God's reputation that's at stake, this unity. And I, I need you to see that this was on the mind of Jesus before he goes to the cross, when he prays for you and he prays for me. Read John chapter 17 and we see that he prays for his disciples. But later in John chapter 17 and verse 20, listen to these words. This is Jesus praying the, the, the prayer that he'll pray in the garden of Gethsemane before he'll be arrested, before he'll be crucified. Listen, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me because their message has been recorded in the word of God that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. These things have been written in his word so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, 
name, we might have a life in his name. We believe in Jesus. We believe through their message. So Jesus is praying for you and me. He says this, that all of them, verse 21, John 17, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me, just like the pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem when the city is going to be crowded and the world is going to be watching. The world is going to watch how followers who claim to be followers of Jesus get along. And if we get along in unity, that's when the world will believe. You want to know why the world's not believing? Because the world doesn't see in us unity. You want to know why the world doesn't see in us unity? Is because there is no behold me. It's always somebody else's fault. You want to know why there's no behold me? Because we haven't beheld God. We haven't become beholden to the one we should behold. That verse, that section continues Jesus' prayer, verse 22, John 17. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity of God's people. It's good and it's pleasant and it's on Jesus' mind. I wonder if because he sang this song, Psalm 133, as he marches with his followers towards Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem for the great feast of Passover for that one last time, I wonder if these words were on his mind as he prayed that prayer in John chapter 17. And you me how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell, yes, together in unity. Jesus prayed for it. But the apostles who come after Jesus, after the church, the church's birth, the apostles write, Ephesians chapter four, verse three, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. You know what a more literal translation of that phrase, make every effort could be? Knock yourself out fighting for that. Knock yourself out fighting for the unity of the spirit. You want to behold God and his vision for unity, his people dwelling, yes, together in unity. Do everything you can. Knock yourself out. I think it means knock yourself out in effort, but I think it also means knock yourself out. Get rid of yourself. It starts with humility, saying, God, behold me. If there's some way in me that's keeping unity from happening in my city, in my country, in my world, God, start this work in me. Knock yourself out. Friends, God may deal with you individually when it comes to redemption. When it comes to you making a personal choice, nobody else can decide for you and you can decide for nobody else. You have to make a personal choice about what God, God, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that if you confess your sins, nobody else can confess your sins for you. God deals with you individually when it comes to redemption, but if you want to grow in Christ, it will never happen as an individual. It will only happen in the context of community. That's why the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake yourself, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. And that had nothing to do with church buildings. That was written over about 300 years before church buildings would even exist. It was you have to do this. If you think you are going to grow individually in your relationship with God. Simply, if you get your own Bible and your own private quiet time and you snuggle up next to God with your blanket and your warm cup of coffee and you think that's how you're going to grow, you are sadly mistaken. 
When it comes to growth in Christ, it happens in the context of community. When brothers and sisters, maybe I should say it even a little more strongly if that's not strong enough for you yet. There are no only children in God's family. If you have said yes and God is now your father, you have brothers and sisters and you are responsible to them and you are accountable to them and you need to be living life in community with them. We've said it this way around Miami Valley Church for a whole bunch of years. Living life the Jesus way cannot be done alone. And this is incredibly even more difficult now in the COVID-19 season. And when just, you know, the last part of August, when we announced as a church that we've sensed God saying that we're not going to meet together uh, in the building, at least for the remainder of 2020, Um, that just hits some of us really hard. Like, well, how am I supposed to have community? How am I supposed? Well, it has nothing to do with a church building. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But let let me just reemphasize, we we haven't even gotten out of verse one yet. You're like, how long is this sermon going to go? Trust me, it's going to get shorter really quick. Behold, God wants your attention. He wants you to wake up. He wants you to see his mission and his message and the way that it's supposed to be done and the way that it's supposed to be done is together. And there will never be unity unless we are together and there will never be together unless you and I start saying, behold me, God. Am I part of the problem? God, I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution because it is good. It is beautiful. It is pleasant. It is sweet when we as God's people, God's family, brothers and sisters, because we've trusted in Jesus when we dwell, yes, together in unity. And all of a sudden, David gives two incredible pictures of what this unity is like. He says it's like a precious oil that's poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto the edges of his robe. Aaron is the high priest. And so we want to keep that in mind. And the robe he's wearing is a high priestly robe, this precious oil that's that's poured out. Uh, I want to talk about the precious oil in just a minute, but I need you to understand that oil is used in the ancient world as a, as a sign of hospitality. It's a sign of welcome. When a weary traveler would come into your home, uh, you would greet them with some, some olive oil and they'd rub it on the skin that's been worn by the sun. They'd, you'd pour it over their head just as a sign of welcome and hospitality and generosity, just that they're welcome, that, that you're, well, you're, you're not a stranger, you're welcome to our home. But, but this oil, this oil is precious oil. It's, it's sacred oil. It's the oil that's poured over the, the, the head of the high priest. If you read in the book of Exodus in the time of the wilderness journey, God sets up all these regulations. And one of the regulations he sets up is there's to be this special anointing oil that's used for priests, for the furniture that's going to go in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, and then for the high priest. For the priests, regular priests and the furniture, this oil is sprinkled. By the way, God gives the recipe for this oil. Uh, It's a special mixture, and God is adamant that this special mixture cannot be marketed for any other purposes. Do not use it for anything else but for the anointing. Do not use it and just sprinkle it on the priest, sprinkle it on the furniture. But when it comes time for the high priest, you pour it abundantly over his head and it's going to run down his head and it's going to run into his beard and it's going to get on the edges of his robe. Aaron is the high priest and the oil is just poured out extravagantly over his head and it runs down his beard and it gets onto his robe. You know what's sewn into the robe on the edges of the high priest? The name of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
I think this is a picture that this anointing flows. It begins in heaven. It flows to the priest and it flows and it covers all of God's people for all of eternity. It's a beautiful picture of flowing down from head to toe, covering everyone who's a follower of God. The second picture is like it. It says it's it's uh, like the dew of Mount Hermon. Uh, uh, descending down on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon's in the north, so think about it in the north. Its elevation is about 9,100 feet above sea level. The mountains of Jerusalem are at about uh, 2,400 feet above sea level. And so again, you get the picture descending down. It's the same word actually is used about Aaron and the oil running down. Three times God says, I want you to see that this oil runs down, this oil runs down, this oil runs down, and it renews and it refreshes everyone. That's just what God does. And oil in the scripture has always been a picture of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is ultimately the one who was anointed. And Jesus is he's anointed as the Messiah. He sends then the Holy Spirit to come and dwell among his church to give us power and authority and the ability to live together as God's people, proving to be a pleasant and good community to the world that's watching. It's this beautiful picture of what flows down. James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father above. He just pours it down on us, this, this oil that's descending. And so you get the picture that it comes from God and it covers everybody that's in his family. And so if you have hatred or anger towards somebody uh, in your family uh, and in God's family, that there has no place because God's oil has covered them as much as it has covered you and you are equal to them. And in fact, maybe you ought to look at it this way. Uh, what if I look at them instead of hatred and anger and say, hey, maybe they're my priest. Maybe they're the one who can help carry my burden. We believe in the priesthood of all believers that we don't need a priest, but what if somebody else is supposed to help carry my burden and shoulder my load? And if I hate them, that's just not going to happen. And then then this song ends from there, from Zion. Uh, God commanded the blessing, life everlasting. Now, if you haven't been excited up to this point, you should get super excited about that point when you hear the phrase life everlasting. Did you know that this is the first place in the Old Testament everlasting life is mentioned? So the first place in all the scripture everlasting life is mentioned right here, Psalm 133. And you should start jumping up and down because wow, life everlasting, life everlasting, life everlasting. Uh, we know about it, that God's word talks about it. Maybe you know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world um, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Maybe you know it again to John chapter 17. Did I say John 7? That was John 3, by the way. John 3, 16. John 17, as Jesus is praying, John 17, 3, uh, Jesus prays this prayer, and he says, um, this is everlasting life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Life everlasting to the to the Hebraic mindset. It's mentioned here, Psalm 133, for the first time, mentioned the second and only other time in, in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. But everlasting life, think about it this way, lasting life versus fleeting life. Lasting life versus fleeting life. But we have made everlasting, lasting life so much about uh, um quantity of time. We think everlasting life starts when we die. We made everlasting life, lasting life start at death, but that's not when it starts. Lasting life starts when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It's not just about quantity of time. It's about quality of life here. It's about living in light of eternity and making sure that everything that I think about and do has eternity in its mind. And that means how I get along with other people. So what's this mean for you and me? By my observations, um, if you've never received eternal life, the scriptures tell you this, that God 
love, so he gave. You have to believe and you receive it as a gift, John 3, 16. If you've never received that gift, we'd love to help you take that step. But I want to talk especially to those of you who've received that gift. How Behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell, yes, together in unity. Are you stopping to see God's vision of how he wants the church to live, his family? I'm torn up, and I hope you are too, about the hatred and the just the division that exists in the midst of this political election. And so many of us think that the only thing I can have in common with me is those who believe with me the same exact way that I do politically. I just want to say a word to you. If you are making uh, your politics equal with God, you've got the wrong God. Politics are not going to save you. You and I have to behold him and simply say, God, behold me how you want me to live. If there's not unity among God's believers, I see it this way. I think we'd rather fight than forgive. I see us, we'd rather remove others than reconcile them. Maybe I should put it in more contemporary language. Uh, we'd rather cancel others out than continue a conversation to get to know them. And we just want to write them off because we think they're wrong. So much we could do here, and I hope that you'll join one of our Miami Valley uh, studies and watch one of our uh, group leaders take you deeper into this. But if God is our Father and we are His children, and I'm going to be part of this community of faith that's called to live together in unity, the question is not uh, anything other than this, how are we going to love and share Jesus with the valley where He's placed us? And the start of that answer is together. And the only way we can get together is if you and I each say, behold me. And then we're all in humility and gratitude functioning from the same place. So let me ask you a few questions as we really think about what it means to dwell together in unity, to behold him, his vision and his mission, and simply say, behold me. Because if those two things don't happen, there will never be unity. A few questions. If you're a member of God's family, what are you going to do to push yourself into community because living life the Jesus way can't be done alone. And I know it's hard in COVID and I know there are some restrictions, but I would guess you could be comfortable at least around three or four other people, socially distanced, where you could get together and have a church that meets in your home and you're together. If we can't be together uh, big corporately, at least we can be together the church and homes. What are you doing to tear down your walls? Friends, I am one of the worst offenders of this. I'm an introvert and I could uh, just, you know, figure it out on my own, I think, but I can't. I have to tear down my walls and let people in. What am I doing to dig deep with others, to go deeper into God's word and not isolate myself? What am I doing to love my neighbor? Friends, I need you to understand that the oil of the Holy Spirit rests on you and God's word gives you this challenge, Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Check this out. This is what God's word says about unity. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, all shouting and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God forgave you in Christ. That is the work of unity. Knock yourself out to live like that with the oil of the Holy Spirit resting on you. And one last thing as I bring this in for a landing. When I think about the church being united, I think about the early church, the book of Acts. As Jesus has ascended into heaven, he's told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, the oil of anointing, uh, to come on them and that they would receive power and they'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them, uh, they begin 
to preach. Acts chapter 2, listen to what it says. And the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Without a building, God's people were living together in unity and it was good and it was pleasant and the, uh, and the world was watching and the world said yes to Jesus because the church was living the way the church was supposed to be living. As you follow the story of the book of Acts out, it says that as they went uh, out of Jerusalem into other cities, it says they turned, that their, their reputation was they turned the world upside down. My brothers and sisters, in order for the church to once again turn the world upside down, the churches had to be turned inside out. And I think that that's what COVID-19 has done for us as Miami Valley Church. It's turned us inside out. Maybe another way to say that is our biggest concern right now should not be about when can we get back in a building. Our biggest concern should be about building a community of people who behold God and simply say together, behold me. We will live in community and unity so that the world might know that Jesus was sent if we're gonna turn the world upside down and Jesus is in the process through COVID-19 and other things of, of turning the church inside out, it means this. We have to face upward in worship. Adoration, surrender, and love beholding him. We have to turn outward in mission, proclamation and service loving and sharing Jesus starting in the valley where he's placed us. And we have to face forward in community, welcoming, encouraging, abundantly telling people you're no longer a stranger, you're part of the family, and I will not let you live life alone because Jesus wants us to love one another. By this, all men will know we're his disciples, that we love one another. There's a lot for you in Psalm, this little Psalm of Psalm 133, and I want you to read through it, but I just wanna ask, are you stopping to behold Jesus and his mission and his message, and will you today Pray this prayer with me. God, behold me. In humility and gratitude, I want to be part of the solution and no longer part of the problem because a world that's in desperate need of Jesus is watching. Father, I just thank you that in these moments, you command the blessing toward us, life everlasting. And life everlasting is not about there and then, it is about here and now. And part of life everlasting here and now means that we need to be a community that dwells together. Yes, dwells together in unity because that will be good and pleasant. And the world that's watching will then know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God, may we be people right now who hear your blessing and stop and behold you. And the only response you want from us today is God, behold me. Here am I, send me. May we together do good and pleasing things so the world will know Jesus. Father, help us concentrate on building that kind of a community. Father, how would you have us love and share Jesus with this valley? You've already showed us that it's to be done together. Help us take that step today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, you heard Dr. Cox say it. God, we want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. But it all starts right here. What does God want to do inside of you today? What needs to change? 
what needs to look more like him, would you let us know at startatmiamivalley.org. That's startatmiamivalley.org. Let us begin praying with you and for you as we go on this journey together. As we get up and leave these screens, wherever you're watching from today, let's go out and love the valley and share Jesus right where we are.